Today's episode is brought to you by Slayhouse Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Welcome to another episode of Slayhouse Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. With me today is my esteemed guest, Nat Cassidy. Nat Cassidy writes horror for the page, stage, and screen. His debut novel, Mary, An Awakening of Terror, was published by Tor Nightfire in July 2022 and was named one of the best horror novels of the year by Esquire, Paste Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, and more. He won the New York Innovative Theater Award for Outstanding Solo Performance for his one-man show about H.P. Lovecraft and was commissioned by the Kennedy Center to write the libretto for a short opera about the end of the world, of course. Also an established actor on stage and television, usually playing monsters and villains on shows such as Blue Bloods, Bull, Quantico, FBI, Law and Order, SVU, and many more, Nat lives in New York City with his wife. His next novel, Nestlings, is due out from Nightfire in October 2023, and has been named one of the most anticipated horror novels of the year by Paste Magazine and Goodreads. Welcome, Nat. I'm glad that this is an audio format, so you don't have to see me cringing the recitation of my bio. <laughs> Just sitting there listening. Oh, I was so going to ask you, you know, it's, it's six o'clock over here. Have you added any accolades since <laughs> yesterday? No, I've lost two, and I won't tell you which two, <laughs> but it was brutal. It's been a brutal day. I love it. I love it. I am so excited to talk to you. I mean, for a number of different reasons, not the least of which is Nestlings coming out on Halloween. Pretty on brand, right? It's pretty. Yes, it's very on brand. <laughs> How are you feeling about the book coming up? Oh, I'm a I'm a stew of neuroses and anxiety. Uh, it's the the hardest <laughs> the hardest chunk of time is like that, like six months before your book comes out because it's. It's so done. It's so out of your hands. It you, there's nothing you can change. It's at the. It's been at the printers. Like it's a physical thing that is being made now, and like early readers are starting to read it, and reviews are starting to trickle in, uh, and you just have to like sit there and be like, oh god, I hope people like it because I literally have no way to change it or do anything whatsoever. So it's yeah, it's a, it's a lovely stew. The the author's brain before uh before release. Uh, so I'm looking forward to just being out, being out and in readers' hands and stuff like that. So I can stop refreshing NetGalley and Goodreads. I'll still, <laughs> I'll still read them, but I'll refresh them a little less. I was very surprised uh, when I contacted you to find that you had read my review of of Nestlings, and I was like, oh God, no! <laughs> <laughs> it was a beautiful review, and I'm very appreciative of it. Uh, and I hope my saying that doesn't uh, doesn't make people think like they should change their reviews uh knowing that i'm lurking but it is a horrible <laughs> habit of mine it's because i'm a i'm a, a reformed theater producer basically so like i'm always looking for quotes i'm always looking for things i can promote and stuff like that and it's a sickness and i just <laughs> literally yesterday finished reading yellow face which is <laughs> in part about uh mm -hmm. how detrimental that those instincts are so i feel very called out by certain parts of that book <laughs> And I'm hoping I'll change my behavior. It was funny during StokerCon, one of the panels I spoke on was a marketing uh, panel. Uh, and it was uh, it was a great panel, uh, but I confessed to my Goodreads checking 
impulses. And there was a collective gasp of horror in that room. Like I just confessed <laughs> to a murder. Uh, people were horrified on my behalf and I'm trying to kick the habit, but uh, I'm not, I'm not so good at it. I, I mean, for what it's worth, I think it's hilarious and, <laughs> and, and quite charming. Um, I feel like Stephen Graham Jones does that a lot too. And, and I don't know why, but he like goes in and he'll actually like, like certain reviews when they're posted yeah. i'm like what are you doing i did that for mary and i i haven't done that for nestlings because like i again i'm trying to like wean myself off of that, <laughs> that impulse but yeah it's 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 definitely touching a hot stove again and again and again and again and again <laughs> and again and you'll you'll learn next time my my anecdote about goodreads is uh apparently when i was teaching a class uh i had chosen a one-star review of a book that I really loved and it was really critical that the book gasp was political mm -hmm. and uh and my comment was was just like how does how are we do we live in a society where people don't realize that the art they consume is always political all pieces of art are political mm -hmm. um and I threw a chair across the room to make my point and apparently in that class one of my former students said the only two things she really walked away with was one i must be unhinged <laughs> and two uh never go on goodreads so i maybe i did a little bit of public service there I yeah don't you you bettered a life right there right all <laughs> right just stay away from goodreads <laughs> and you ruined a chair so you yeah about even up you know i it's it was university property it was probably time for it to go anyway <laughs> We got that chair in the Carter administration. That chair was two days from retirement. <laughs> and that's, a, they won't get rid of them either. Mm. That That's the, the crazy thing is, is because it was paid for by public funds. They yeah. literally cannot just like throw it in the dumpster. So um, it's, it's fine if like something's stolen, they're just like, oh, oops, our chairs were <laughs> stolen. So we, we used to see chairs like stacked up out in the hallway and it was really like, these are the surplus chairs. We can't oh, no. legally get rid of them. But oops, if you poor grad students happen to steal a bunch of chairs for your apartments, it was really funny. Oh, that's the chair equivalent of going to a farm upstate. You're going <laughs> to be in a grad student's. A grad student's apartment, yeah. <laughs> yeah. To, to kind of shift topics, you know, back to, to nestlings a little bit. It, I think I feel like it's very clear to say that you're a, a Stephen King mega fan <laughs> isn't um, that obvious yes <laughs> yes so in the wake of the the episodes that you and ali Malinenko did and mm. uh neil mcroberts did on talking scared you know how are you feeling about you know that conversation that neil had with stephen king and the fact that stephen king has you know listened to you analyze his his literature like what has the experience been like post that interview <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm, all of my answers are going to be of a theme, I think. It's fraught. I'm I'm full of neuroses about it. Uh, uh, because now he's out there. Now I'm on his radar, maybe. Um, no, I mean, it, it was, it was uh, uh, the the podcast about it anyway was, was such a treat because I, I love Neil. I love Allie. I love it. I can talk about Stephen King for, uh, for hours upon hours upon hours upon hours. Uh, so it was just a lovely experience and it was a great conversation. Um, and so I was really proud to be a part of it. So like that, that Dianu, that was enough. Uh, but the fact that he listened to it and gave it his stamp of approval, uh, despite the, of course, then 
esprit de scalier of like being like, oh God, what did I say? What could I have said better? Did I say anything controversial or or offensive? Or uh, I hope he liked what I said. I hope he likes me. You know those sort of neuroses. Um, despite all that, like it was it was just such a such a um, such a delight that he listened and interacted with it. And uh, um, that I will say that like I as uh, to to borrow a phrase from you, I'm a Stephen King super fan. Uh, I would I would say uh, uh, probably an obsessive an obsessive fan ever since I was a little kid. Uh, so I have consumed a lot of interviews with him. I've listened to a lot of interviews. I've read a ton of interviews with him. And that interview that Neil had with him, uh, that 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 bespoke episode uh, with Stephen King, is one of the best interviews I've ever I've ever heard or 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 read or encountered in any medium whatsoever with him. Uh, so it was just it was so thrilling to have like a you know sort of virtual front row seat to that because i know neil also is very similarly obsessed mm. um and uh you know i was just in awe of how neil conducted that interview because i've met king i've worked with king very briefly uh on a project many years ago uh in which i had very little to do but uh, i was with him for like a week and had like a, a big group dinner with him afterwards and uh I'm pretty comfortable around most people and pretty gregarious as my animated voice might tell you. Uh, but when I'm around someone of like that stature, who's that important to me personally, I withdraw uh, and like just want to seem cool and not convey how fucking uh, uh, obsessive I can be. Uh, so I I barely said a word to him. I, I made a few like really corny, <laughs> shitty jokes and uh, mainly talked about how much I was really enjoying uh, Joe Hill's work uh, at the time because he was like just kind of coming <laughs> out. I was like, I'm not going to talk about you at all. Uh, um, so yeah, I felt super awkward and and self aware. All of which is to say, like the comfort and the ease and the 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 conversability that Neil had with him was I was I was in awe uh, of how he conducted himself with that interview. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a thrill. I I'm still, you know, every day chewing my nails to the quick hoping uh he'll pick up mary or nestlings which has been sent to him several times but uh you know i've i've done what i can uh uh <laughs> so on the flip side you know how do you feel about so many of your readers and reviewers kind of looking at mary and now nestlings seeing yeah. the kind of homages to king and really comparing you i mean in the same sentence with like this is very reminiscent of king at his best I look, it's a it's a uh, an accolade I'll never turn down. That's for sure. Uh, it's it's very appreciated. Um, and you know, it it's it's a double edged thing because there are, um, you know, I don't want to wax Freudian too much, but like if if there's a a uh, a writer who's a huge influence on you in a way, they're kind of like an artistic parent, and you want to like live up to their reputation, but you also want to have your own thing. <laughs> right. uh, uh, you know, you don't want to just be like looked at as an imitator or something like that. So. You know, I feel like King-esque is kind of an easy uh, reference for most horror fiction these days, unless it's like truly uh, narratively experimental or something like that. Mm. Uh, he casts such a wide shadow that it feels like that is, um, you know, that's that's almost a generic term for like, mm. this is an American horror story. Uh, <laughs> uh, lowercase American or lowercase horror. I'm not referencing the show. You know what I mean. Uh, uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, like it is, you know, it's a very... Uh, uh, emotionally affecting thing to hear. It, it, mm. it, uh, it's, it's, 
I'm repeating myself, but it's it's never something I'm like upset to hear or anything like that. And I feel like especially uh, Nestlings and Mary, they are in many ways kind of in conversation with King's work yeah. anyway, uh, kind of purposefully, even though like I feel like they're very different uh, beasts than something King would write. Um, they're definitely in conversation with him. I tend to, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to do that in my work, even as a playwright too, like a lot of my plays are, um, you know, it's the kind of Tom Stoppard influence. They're referencing other work. They're again, in like conversation with, uh, mm. I have a lot of, uh, plays that are, that are about Shakespeare and about like the point of Shakespeare, like explicitly about Shakespearean work and stuff like that. Um, I have one that's, uh, you know, all about Dostoevsky. In fact, I have two that are all about Dostoevsky. Like, I just love to kind of have works of art that also bring in other works as kind of supplementary commentary. Uh, and Mary very much does that with Carrie, and Nestlings very much does that with uh, with Salem's Lot and The Shining. The book I just finished that I think comes out in 2025, because uh, uh, publishing is slow, uh, <laughs> is very much like, Firestarter and it and a couple of other things like that kind of thrown in there and the Twilight Zone and Terminator 2 Dude, uh, for good I, measure you're, you're speaking to like all of the things that I want to see in a book I, I feel like every <laughs> time I talk to to an author and they they start sharing like the next project I'm like can I can we skip to then like, <laughs> nothing is wrong with this moment but I also yeah. want that moment too you know right I know it's so I, I feel like it's in really good shape for a first draft too. So I'm like, oh, I just want it out. Like I just want to go through like a round of edits and get it out, but we must be patient. So what really kind of speaks to you a little bit about some of these older texts that hmm. you know you're kind of in conversation with? Because I know there's uh, not to get too deep into the like the world lit angle, um, hmm. which is always where my brain lives. Um but, you know, like a lot of classical authors would always be referencing, you know, all of these other texts. It was just, yeah. it's like kind of part of establishing your authorial presence, right? You have to pay uh, homage to, you know, kind of these old masters. Do, do you feel like it's it's sort of the same thing for you? Or is it that there's something artistically about these books that that you feel you can kind of speak through their language and kind of say what you want to say? That's a great question. Um, and like, and, and I'm really glad you asked that because I have a lot of answers that I'm going to fumble my way through. Uh, but I, I feel like we also have very similar backgrounds because like I, I know you have like the, the, the world lit background. Mm -hmm. My, uh, my background is really steeped in, in classical uh, theater, especially like Shakespeare yeah. is probably as big an obsession in my life as Stephen King has been. Uh, I've been reading and, and performing Shakespeare since I was like six years old. It's just kind of been something that has informed my artistic outlook and my just kind of outlook as a as a sentient being. I'm gonna put a pin in this because yeah. I want to talk shit. I'm I'm about to start teaching another world literature class. Oh yeah, and it would be fantastic to to have some sound bites for my students about like Shakespeare. So oh, we could do that. We could definitely do that. But as you say, as you so aptly say, like all of these works, there is this lineage of, it's almost like a relay race. So there's this generation of of uh, writers and then the next generation is paying homage to them. And then the next generation is paying homage to them. Uh, uh, and, you know, I, it makes sense, especially when like the, the literature zeitgeist was so small 
uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, for for social reasons and prejudice reasons and 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 technical reasons because it was just hard <laughs> to like print a book. Uh, but so like it was this this you know ever evolving pool of people constantly commenting on what had come before, um, and uh, uh, I, so I think there is definitely a part of that. It even it even makes me think of like. Uh, the first time I, this is going to be the most pretentious sentence I'm going to say tonight, I hope. <laughs> I could outdo myself uh, when we get to hour two. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, for now, this is the most pretentious thing I'm going to say. When I first played Hamlet, like I was very much, uh, very much aware of that, of it being like a relay race. And like every time you do Hamlet, especially yeah. when you're a precious little classical theater snob, you're looking at, you're looking at Olivier, you're looking at Brana, you're looking at uh Gilgood, you're looking at Burton, you're just looking at all these extant Hamlets that you can draw on. Right. And course. even scholarship about Hamlets that like you can't see because they weren't recorded or something like that. But you're reading all of them and trying to figure out there's there's even a great so my the bookshelf that's to the right of my camera right here that you can't see is <laughs> my my theater uh, uh bookshelf. And there are, are a couple of books uh called uh i think one is called modern hamlet and his soliloquies or their soliloquies i think okay Uh, and it's it's an interview book with like 10 of the most prominent hamlets at that time that the books came out which is probably like 20 years ago uh so you know simon russell beale and and brana and uh daniel day kim was one of them and, and a few others like that uh and just like having them break down the seven big soliloquies and like what was you what was going on what was going on in your head when you were doing to be or not to be or rogan peasant slave or uh how all occasions do inform like what what were you thinking and what were you aware of and each one kind of would touch on the versions of those speeches they'd seen before um i know i'm i'm I'm, uh waxing academic here but basically (laughs) uh those sort of things really excite me and, and make me feel like i'm i'm a part of something that is even bigger than just like sitting and firing up a book uh, uh in the in the privacy of my little office uh i love i love you know for lack of a better term i love meta narratives i love uh i love a, a piece of art that is commenting on itself in some way or another it doesn't have to be explicit it doesn't have to be you know a a, a book about a book or anything like that but i but that it still exists in this continuum of thoughts and experiences because to me that's what literature is and more than anything, that's what horror literature is, because it is this uh, long, uh, ever illuminating uh, 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 like torch path behind us as to like the things that we've always been afraid of and the things that have always consumed us as sentient meat bags who know we're going to die. Um, and, <laughs> right. uh, you know, so that's that's my highfalutin answer. There's also like even more practical answers of like, I feel like in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, during the like the, the big paperback horror zeitgeist, uh, when it was all the rage, authors were given really free reign of just going nuts, and like mm-hmm. there were you know books could be really long. There wasn't the sort of uh, um, the 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 hunger for like just an eighty thousand word compact narrative that there is now. Uh, so they could be really long. They could be incredibly surreal and weird. Uh, but they were also being written by this generation, by by the the boomers uh, uh, when when they were younger, uh, who were like really <laughs> like grass fed on serialized uh, uh, TV and movies and radio and and so many things that gave them a very 
interesting form of dramaturgy i find like especially mm. stephen king i think is such an interesting dramaturg the way he tells his stories and the way that they become uh very experiential like every moment yes. i'm gonna get really in the weeds here but like every moment this is and the reason i can get in the weeds is like this is something i'm trying to train out of myself because again <laughs> it's not very au courant right now it leads to a a larger page count uh, because like every moment is dramatized you're with these characters mm. when they're going along every step whereas like a writer nowadays uh would probably be encouraged to like that could just be a sentence that chapter right. that Stephen King wrote could just be a sentence in this book but because uh it didn't have to be a sentence when King was writing and because you know everyone was on drugs at the time mm. and no one was <laughs> was uh constrained by uh by what the market was uh was demanding um you were kind of able to just like live in these characters' heads and mm. let information unspool in very sloppy ways. It's sloppy. There are a lot of times I reread Stephen King books and I'm like, buddy, <laughs> why are we doing it this way? <laughs> this is really <laughs> sloppy. Uh, but there's a weird magic to it too. It's one yeah. of the reasons why I think uh, A, kids or like teenagers really fall in love with that sort of style uh, and why uh, we have such a profound connection to his characters. He's so great at writing characters uh, because you spend so much time with them, mm -hmm. like an excessive amount of time with them. You learn about their bowel habits. You learn about like the first time <laughs> they masturbated. Like those are, that's the sort of trivia you you get about all of these characters in King's work um, and in and in his contemporaries' work. Uh, and there's a a real beauty to it there's a real loveliness to it it, remi it reminds me a lot of like dickensian fiction even you know when you were getting paid by the word and <laughs> right, you would have yeah. you would have chapters like he was as dead as a doornail or perhaps i should say coffin nail maybe that's more accurate <laughs> because he was and you're just like get to the point uh right. <laughs> but it again becomes this very experiential uh uh thing reading them and like living in that world i think a lot about this experientiality if you will um and and how i feel like it resonates through a lot of art um mm -hmm. i feel like i'm a i'm i'm story obsessive like through my whole life i've always just i've loved a book um i was reciting dr seuss before i could even read i would <laughs> i would just have my mother read these stories to me over and over and over and and i would just like devour them and regurgitate them at at any point in time i could and I, I feel like you, you said something that was really interesting about, you know, kind of this artistic desire when you're creating something, you know, to be a part of something, to be a mm. part of this, whether it be kind of a generational uh, passing of the torch in terms of the stories that we tell, or, you know, something bigger than that, something more like essential to being human and mm. and the you know the kind of humanness of our of our existence you know i think about like the the utility of art too you know as someone who just reads a lot you know or someone who goes to the theater and just watches people perform right i feel like there's that too is an essential component of the being a part of something yeah and i think that you know like there's a reason for you know kind of establishing yourself in this kind of space because it it we exist in that same space too right mm. and and so like that open dialogue between you know you and and the other writers that maybe came before you or the other writers who are working now 
and your readers who are here now, the readers who are going to be there later, you know, the readers who were there before and, and are now finding you, like it's all kind of part of that same symbiotic relationship we have to art and the experientiality of art, if that makes any fucking sense. Totally, totally. Um, yeah, I, I think that's spot on. And I think there's one additional element to it too, where, um, you know, specifically as like a, a creator, um, I don't, although I imagine even an audience member probably feels this way too, that it's also a very interesting catalyst for progression too, because you pay homage usually in like your first couple of things. And then once you've done it, you almost loathe it. There's almost like this like <laughs> post-coital feeling of like, oh, I don't want to do that again after you've done it a few times. <laughs> and so like, then you reach a point where you're like, I want to do something they haven't done before. Uh, um, like you see this in music a lot too. Like you'll listen to like a band's first couple mm. of albums and they're so of a tradition uh, and then they start to get to this point where like they start referencing themselves and becomes like mm. more and more uh, like almost uh, uh, entropic in a way. Like they start like breaking down the things that were their influences mm. and trying to get at, um, you know, it almost reminds me of a, uh, a saying an ex-girlfriend of mine uh, always used to say, and it, it always stuck with me because I loved it. Uh, um, she was she was huge into like Grateful Dead and stuff like that. She was She was a big hippie uh which i offer for context uh but she was talking about um eventually you reach a point as an artist where you don't want to uh fall into the same hazards that your antecedents did that your that your influences did uh because there's so many people that do that so many people that are like oh i you know i can't be a writer or drink because the writers i idolize were all alcoholic so i have to do that uh and this this quote aphorism or wherever it came from was basically don't seek to do what they did seek what they sought mm. and that's always stuck with me that like eventually you reach a point where you stop wanting to pay homage to the structure and the form that your idols uh were doing but to the motivations behind it uh and so you you start to kind of destruct uh you know self-destruct the sort of uh, the constructs that you've been working under the veneers you've been working behind uh and uh try something new all in the uh mm. all in the the mission of getting to a deeper truth that brought you to those works probably in the first place so like the the book that i'm talking about that uh that i just finished um is you know referencing it in terminator 2 and firestarter and stuff like that but it's very different uh it's also <laughs> the, those who've read mary and or nestlings and uh complained about the page length it's also like 85,000 words or something like that. It's it's like half the length of Mary. Uh, um, uh, and, you know, again, less... I, it, I did that less because I was thinking of, uh, you know, the market or the marketability of that. And more just because I was like, no, I want to I do it. I want to do something that feels like more contemporary and more alive mm. and more uh, a little less like consciously referential. Um, mm. If that makes sense. I know I'm also... I'm also just regurgitating words at you. <laughs> no, I, I think it does make sense. Uh, it 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 stirs up so many thoughts because mm. I, 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 man, I just, I break down uh, past a certain point where like I lose sleep thinking about, you know, just our relationship to art and, mm. and, and 
you know, whether or not there isn't even is the ability to, to, you know, like retrieve art that yeah. exists outside of our, you know, kind of like social settings or economic conditions, you know, um, it, it just like, it eats at my brain in a way that I don't think is healthy. <laughs> um, but, but it's, it's really interesting, you know, um, I, this idea of like, you know, kind of seeking what they saw and, and trying to kind of break out of the referentiality, you know, to kind of, even if you become very self-referential, I mean, mm. is that not kind of part of the creative process of finding your own voice of yeah. trying to discover, you know, really what is the soul of you, your matter, your voice in a book, um, what distinguishes you from what came before, what is fresh, and what can we then carry on with us as we progress, you know, kind of through our own discovery of our artistic passions? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's that's very well put. It is this constant uh, expanding and contraction that, you know, it almost looks like a like a <laughs> like an inchworm inching along. Because, uh, uh, yeah, you uh, you uh, the the way I sometimes think of it too is that like um, and maybe this is because I recently read Whale Fall and uh, oh have this uh, <laughs> bouncing around in my head. Although it wasn't even that recent, it was like a month ago at this point. Right. Uh, but I really do look at art as like the stomach acid of human experience, and it is just kind of this thing that like breaks down all this information that we have, all this shit that we have swallowed and consumed, whether it's trauma, whether it's experience whether it's, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, we rely on art and stories uh, as a way to uh, compartmentalize, as a way to digest, as a way to metabolize all these experiences and put them in a way that is uh, understandable and actionable. Uh, and so that's got to include the things that came before you. And it's got to include the things that are in conflict with the things that came before you. You know, like the market uh, that uh, <laughs> that uh, demands a shorter book, but also like just to to uh, bring another example, like when I was a a younger playwright, um, I loved writing long plays, um, and I'm not a monster. I always did like multiple <laughs> intermissions because I love multiple intermissions. Like oh, I loved, course, yeah. You know, I, I again, I grew up doing Shakespeare and like I write horror plays. So these were like horror plays and they were big epics and there'd be like two intermissions and a huge body count. And I was, <laughs> you know, it really kind of culminated in uh, uh, a great lowercase g. Uh, I mean, size wise, uh, uh, <laughs> unproduced show of mine that actually wound up being developed for for TV uh, and is still floating around as a, as a TV project because it would be great for TV. But I wanted it for the stage first because it was going to be uh, uh, it was a four act historical epic. A ghost story was going to be lit only with candles. There was a cast of like 30. Uh, and, uh, you know, because I was self-consciously trying to write a Shakespearean history play. Those are my favorite Shakespeare plays, oh, right, the history right. plays. And I, I really wanted to write a history play that was a horror play. Uh, and I wrote it and I loved it. It's been workshopped. Again, it was turned into a TV show. It was turned into an opera. Like it's just, there's so many things. <laughs> and then after I wrote that, which felt like the culmination of my Shakespeare obsession, then I realized, wait, I'm proud of what I wrote. I stand by what I wrote. I would produce it in a heartbeat if I could. But as an audience member, I hate long plays. <laughs> like I really do like to just like <laughs> sit 
for like 80 minutes, no intermission, three characters. And I had to be honest with myself that actually I would be annoyed with myself. If I hadn't written that play and like someone else had presented it to me. I probably would have been like, fuck, are you, I got to sit through a four act play. Like I got to give up my entire like Saturday to see this fucking play. Uh, and so like even those sort of realities eventually go into, you know, your, your whale stomach, uh, and turn around and like something, something new comes out of it. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a multi-chambered stomach. So then like the next work of art comes from the next, you know, stew. It's just this constant breakdown, uh, uh this constant grass is greener of, <laughs> of tropes that you're always trying to capture as a, as a, as a creator. I absolutely love this new metaphor of, <laughs> of the whale stomach of our experiences. Um, absolutely going into my lexicon moving forward. <laughs> Credit so, to, to Daniel Krauss, where do I? Oh my God. That, I'm still not over the book. I, I read it in so like freaking uh, May or something like that. Yeah. I just, uh, I, I can't, I can't. You know, yeah. it's just so absolutely incredible. I'm mad at that book. It's really good. So, uh, what is the the whale stomach in this case that hmm. uh, nestlings represents for you? You know, what has it helped you metabolize, and, yeah. and what are you hoping that it assists in metabolizing for the readers who come into it? Um, it's a great question. I uh, a lot of things actually. It's very as you know, having uh, just recently read it, it's a very autobiographical book. It's very mm. fictional, too. Like, it's not... <laughs> I did not go through the things that these characters went through, <laughs> thankfully. Uh, but it is uh, very much about a specific period in my life, namely 2021, uh, and the things that my wife and I went through, uh, the kind of darker thoughts that we both had while we were going through that period of time um and um also just like some cultural and personal things uh that i really wanted to write about it's a very jewish story i'm jewish mm -hmm. uh and um you know i've always just kind of wanted to write a horror story really explicitly from that perspective too and there's a lot of i call it vampire adjacent because it's really not a vampire story but mm. it also kind of is a vampire story and it's it's if people go into it thinking it's going to be a vampire story, it's it's going to be very different than they expect. But there are tropes and stuff like that that I really wanted to examine from a Jewish lens. And as I was writing it during, you know, this very personally tragic year, um, there was also this upswell of anti-Semitism and things mm -hmm. like that that were happening culturally, too. So, like, it was it was just this confluence of events and personal events that I really wanted to try and digest uh, to carry the metaphor further. Um, so it has a lot of that to it. It also has like, I, I wanted to write um, a sort of uh, 70s potboiler thriller to oh, yeah. if, if Mary was like a, uh, uh, a, a unreliable narrator, like first person, just kind of increasingly surreal and batshit sort of story that you know involves serial killers and ghosts and reincarnation and, and perimenopause and just like all these things uh uh that like i wanted to just kind of just just put my foot on the gas of like some more surreal sort of things this i wanted to feel a lot more compact and a lot more you know a lot more like rosemary's baby a lot more like uh you know 
uh, uh, just kind of the Ira Levin vibe in general, that sort of, uh, you know, sociological thriller of like, something's going on here and we don't quite know what it is. Um, I love that. Uh, so I wanted to kind of capture that too. Yeah, that, so so that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of uh, the like springboard from which, um, uh, from which this book comes from. So for for the listeners that may not know kind of the the plot synopsis, if you will, of Nestlings, what what is Nestlings about? And then I, I have some follow up questions. <laughs> um, Nestlings is about a young couple, Anna and Reed, uh, who have just come through a run of really shit luck. Uh, it it takes place now ish, like twenty twenty three ish in New York City. So they've just lived through you know. Uh, the pandemic, which is, you know, still not done, but like the worst of it uh, uh, is done. They lived through 2020 in New York, which was a very <laughs> traumatic experience uh, that many of us can attest to. And I think forget how traumatic 2020 in New York was. Um, uh, but also like, you know, uh, relatives have just died. Their their jobs have never really recovered from uh, from the pandemic, too. And most of all, uh, they have a, a almost one-year-old daughter, uh, and the labor was incredibly complicated and incredibly wow. difficult, and it resulted in exacerbating this this old injury that Anna had that she had even forgotten she had uh, that caused a hematoma in her spinal column, and uh, now she's paralyzed from the waist down. Incredibly rare. These things never happen, but it happened to them. Uh, and so she's dealing with postpartum depression. She's dealing with uh, uh, post-injury depression, having to to uh, figure out how to use a wheelchair in New York fucking city of all places, which is just all <laughs> stairs and broken sidewalks. And she used to be a dancer. She used to be a personal trainer. Like all of her coping mechanisms have been taken from her. Uh, and she's in this incredibly dark place. And Reed is not someone who's used to being a caretaker. He's been taking care of his wife. He's been taking care of the baby. And it's just been this horrible, horrible year for them. And they're pretty sure that that's it. Like they're they they're not <laughs> lucky people, uh, but suddenly out of the blue, their names get drawn in this housing lottery that they entered like a decade ago as a as a larf uh, for an affordable apartment in a luxury building, just like right off the side of Central Park West. Uh, it's this beautiful historic building called the Detford. It's basically like the the Dakota but taller, um, mm. and it's full of movie stars and musicians and rich people. Uh, and they balk a little bit because their apartment is on the top floor, which makes Anna very nervous. She'd have to rely on this uh, mm. cramped little elevator. What if there's a fire? What if there's an emergency? But they decide, fuck it. Like, we're going to embrace good luck when we get it. Uh, and they decide to move in. And uh, nothing bad happens. That's it. That's the book. <laughs> uh, it was a great decision. Uh, and uh, uh, they, it all works out until you read chapter two. Uh, <laughs> right, and then things uh, start to go south. Uh, but I'll leave it there for for spoilers. But basically, they find out that uh, this their their luck might not have turned after all. Uh, yeah, so that's that's nestlings in a nutshell. This this book has so mm -hmm. much just just packed in it, packed in it, um, and I absolutely love it for that because it 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 really does feel like you just you leave everything on the, the, the kitchen table for us to kind of, you know, sort through and, and, and we, we kind of have to pile through and, and, and figure out, you know, what is this really saying to us? And, and how am I going to use this? Hmm. Um, I, I love the book for that because it, it is 
as messy as I think life is, hmm. but but also authentic in that, you know, and it, it it is so raw with its emotional beats. One of the emotional themes that I really felt very strongly in this book was this, you know, kind of concept of the complication of love, hmm. you know, love as as sacrifice, love as endurance love as an obligation to the other, but also as an obligation to the self. And so I, I kind of wanted to pick your brain a little bit in, you know, some of the the things that, again, you know, you kind of, you used this to, to metabolize the, the complicated interpersonal relationships we have in times of, of trauma or grief or trial. Yeah, that really is the key to the book. Like it is very much a book about love and the uh the necessary nature of love also the damning nature of love um and um you know i I almost followed a thought that would have uh, taken me to spoil the ending so i'm i'm lopping that (laughs) off uh uh but uh it ends in a very on a on a very specific note that i Mm -hmm. think also uh very much supports what you're saying yeah um yeah, like uh, I don't know. It might be it might be helpful for me to um, briefly summarize what happened during twenty twenty one to answer this question. So basically, twenty twenty one on January sixth, the the morning of the insurrection. In fact, mm-hmm. at like uh, four in the morning, my wife's mom died. Then thirteen days later, my mom died. Uh, then a couple of months later, one of my wife's best friends died. And then a couple of months later, our dog and our cat, who uh, were like the the jewels of our lives, mm. uh, they died on the same fucking weekend. Oof. And then a couple of months after that, like right before the year could end, my dad died pretty suddenly. Uh, and along the way, this big professional uh, uh, opportunity of mine uh, that could have been like career changing or at least like life stabilizing mm. fell apart. Uh, uh, and, you know, there were a few other like tragedies uh, incidental tragedies that that happened along the way. But all of that hap- happened in 12 months. And on top of that, uh, up until they died, our pets were, they were old. They were very old. Our, our cat was 18. Our dog was 16. But for like two years, they were so fucking needy. Like they had mm. so many medical issues. Uh, to And it, it got to the point where like our dog uh had canine dementia and cancer and kidney issues our cat had kidney issues uh and i lost my mom to dementia my wife lost her mom to dementia and covid uh we both lost our our moms to covid as well but they'd had dementia uh for a while so like dementia was already just like fucking rampant uh so the fact that our dog had it too was just like it was perfect uh and it also meant that like she the dog would sleep for maybe four hours a night tops wake up need attention like desperately and from the moment she woke up until about midnight when you know she would sundown the way like an alzheimer's patient would sundown Mm. uh uh so like the there were several hours before she fell asleep where it was just like a nightmare um she would have to go out like every 15 minutes because she you know she was having kidney issues also so she would really have to pee but she would also forget that she would peed so she was just like pawing and just mm. begging for going out going out going out uh uh and um you know all sorts of other digestive issues too but she, like 
we never would have put her down because she was uh, uh she was still eating she was still like enjoying the things about life that she right. that she tended to enjoy so we didn't want to cut that short it was just so physically taxing and it was all basically left up to me uh, uh to do so i was running for for 18 months literally running on four hours of sleep a night uh mm. like a like the parent of a newborn who never grew up uh uh and so i was delirious the reason it was left up to me is because having it even worse in the equation my wife was bedridden this entire time because she had this mysterious chronic pain uh that no one could diagnose no one could treat and like even getting out of bed was just like shrieking agony for her some days uh so while literally everyone in our family our parents our children's surrogates is dying <laughs> we're also dealing with extreme sleep deprivation and this you know this unbelievably painful mystery that my wife was having to uh to unravel and live through like living with chronic pain is just a nightmare mm. um and so yeah we were losing our fucking minds uh it was it was absolutely insane and then this i should have had was while i was like writing the the final true drafts of mary uh so yeah. uh uh if anyone has any issues with mary whatsoever just blame it on sleep deprivation uh uh <laughs> It's amazing that that book even exists. Um, so yeah, we really thought that we were we were losing our fucking minds. And we were also living in an apartment uh, where our landlord was an absolute nightmare as well, which I, I won't go into, but uh, talk to me in person one day and I'll give you all the details because that was also <laughs> an insane situation. Uh, none of these things should have been happening uh, even in isolation, but the fact that they were all happening at the same time and, you know, the height of the pandemic still we're both actors our industry had fallen apart we oh had like no God. money it was just like it was just it was a lot uh and um so to answer your question then there this book really dives into those dynamics and you know like speaking of like seek what they sought um hmm. there's 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 some like superficial um analogs to the shining i think but more than that, um, this book is doing something similar that I think King was doing with The Shining, where he was really examining his his alcoholism and how that was making him feel these negative thoughts towards his family and his kids in particular. Mm. Um, I also wanted to kind of delve into uh, the the dual nature of like being a caretaker and the resentments that can pop up and the frustrations that can pop up and the confusion that can pop up. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to examine what my wife had kind of articulated to me that she was going through too, of just like these deep depressions of not being able to use her body the way she used to use it and not, uh, you know, uh, not being able to do the things that actually help get you out of depression, like, you know, go for a walk and, and yeah. things like that. Like, this this horrible spiral that she found herself in and the feelings I had for our pets, which, you know, were again, like these creatures that we fucking adored and loved mm -hmm. with every fiber of our being. But, you know, yeah. I'd be lying if I said there weren't some moments at like 430 in the morning where I was just like yelling at this animal being like, <laughs> why are you like this? Why can't you sleep? Uh, uh, you know, it was just it was so it was so vulnerable and uh, mm. uh fraught and complicated um and uh you know we still have like moments <laughs> where like it's very 
present and real like the the shit that we that we went through but like obviously we're in a much better place now literally we're even in a different apartment uh, <laughs> um but I, so like i wanted this book to examine that and what does it mean to uh love someone so much that you like want to fucking scream at them at 4 30 in the morning uh but also that you're like willing to put your life on hold to like take care of them um and what does it mean to like love mm. someone so much and not be able to help them like in mm. the case of my wife like you know there's a horrible impotency to being a caretaker too where you just like want to do something and sometimes all you can do is just listen to someone sob in misery uh and just have to like be there with them uh, and there's not, you know, especially, you know, not to not to genderize it too much, but especially like, you know, that that male urge to like problem solve or something like that, that <laughs> right, great cliche, yeah. like there's nothing you can fucking do. You just have yeah. to like just be there. Um, so that's the kind of love that this book is examining and how if left unchecked or if left unexamined, mm. which I think happens in this book, this yeah. book is very much a. You know, to bring another Shakespeare analog to it, it's very much like Othello or Hamlet mm, in that, like, I can it really, <laughs> it could be solved with a couple of conversations. <laughs> right. if, like, people would just fucking be honest about what they're going through. <laughs> but they can't, and I think they, they right. can't have these conversations. Hopefully, it's clear to the reader. Um, there are reasons why they don't have these conversations, and they think they're doing this for the best of their relationship. They think they're doing the right thing by not talking about these things. Mm. Uh, but ultimately it leads to some very destructive and uh, uh, tragic decisions. Um, again, arising from that place of love, from that from mm. that place of uh, wanting to be a family, wanting to hold this unit together despite all these external pressures mm -hmm. that are trying to to crush it or tear it apart. Um, I, yeah, I think that sort of answers your question. I, it, it totally does. And, <laughs> and I, I think, you know, to your credit, the other thing that I, I, I don't want to spoil this book because I know it's very highly anticipated. Um, but I, I feel like this also, you know, ties into a lot of the book's thoughts about the nature of sacrifice mm. and, and the need, I think, for 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 replenishment you know um this is a this is a horror story of course things are going to go bad right <laughs> um but i i think it still speaks to you know the the difficulty of this particular kind of trauma not just the trauma of of suffering through something that is truly insufferable um but also the trauma of of having to watch someone go through that mm. and to to feel a, a need a pressure to constantly give and give of oneself and not necessarily feel that recuperative you know whatever it is that that recharges us right yeah the, the feeling of just having to give and give and give and and how do we take back i also think that this dovetails a little bit into the book's contemplation on judaism and jewishness mm. um and and faith and i yeah. i wanted to pick your brain a little bit too because i don't think that this is well represented in not just horror literature like i don't think it's very well represented in a lot of different literatures yeah. we see a lot about you know kind of the the self-flagellating of of catholicism right like that's very well represented in horror but not necessarily judaism so yeah. you know i kind of wanted to hear some of your thoughts too about 
how this book tackles these questions as they come from this very unique perspective on faith. Hey, uh, it's me, uh, Nat, from late October, interrupting Nat from late August. Um, in the conversation that follows, I'm about to go into some thoughts on being Jewish uh, and being an American Jew, specifically, uh, and also Israel as a Jewish homeland and almost like an uh, abstract concept in Judaism. I even make reference to how Judaism isn't a revengeful religion when it comes to our historic displacement, uh, which I mean in like a, a theological context. Um, Trevor and I recorded this episode before the recent ongoing events in Israel and Gaza. Uh, and so with that now as a looming context, it just felt right to, to pop in here and acknowledge that actual Israel uh, is an actual country with an actual government uh, and an actual army, and, and those things uh, can be incredibly revengeful. Some might say uh, justifiably, and some might say uh, disproportionately. Um, the events of October 7th were, were horrifying. Um, generational trauma is very real. I can attest to that. I felt it in ways I, I was not expecting. Um, what Hamas did... Uh, what it does, what it has been doing even to the people purportedly under its care is atrocious and abhorrent. Um, and quite frankly, there's a lot of what the Israeli government has done and is doing uh, in response that is also atrocious and abhorrent. This is a very complicated issue. Uh, uh, with a lot of complicated history, but what is not complicated is that it is unequivocally a moral wrong to meet atrocity with atrocity, war crimes with war crimes. Um, beyond that, uh, for every one thing I want to say, there's a half dozen other things I want to add as, as context, and it doesn't feel right to continue hijacking Trevor's podcast with a little monologue that we're inserting after the fact, and, and this is an otherwise very lovely and completely unrelated conversation, uh, so I'm not going to go into my thoughts on this matter uh, too much further. I, I hope it can suffice to say that my heart is uh, shattering for all the innocent lives being destroyed by this ongoing disaster. Uh, I've spent time in Israel. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly beautiful and complicated place full of beautiful and complicated people. Um, and I'm just, I'm one dumb American horror writer promoting a book. And uh, the reason I'm saying all this is because it is a book that is in part about how uniquely isolated uh, American Jews specifically can feel, uh, like, say, feeling one way about Israel as a concept and as a safeguard against rising global anti-Semitism, but also feeling somehow responsible for answering for the actions of a foreign government who doesn't represent them and who isn't answerable to them. Ah. I hope you can be kind to your Jewish friends and be kind to your Muslim and Arab and Palestinian friends. Uh, be kind to yourself. The only way we can solve these sorts of historical and complex and horrible issues is, is by remembering each other's humanity, especially our own. All right, I have no planned segue for how we get out of this <laughs> insert, uh, so that's Trevor's problem. Uh, back to the past. Yeah, I, unsurprisingly, 
have a lot of thoughts. Uh, so <laughs> I could either, uh, uh, they're, and they're all like trying to jam through the doorway of my brain right now. So bear with me as I, as I fumble through it and I'll probably say like a 10th of, of what I want to say. Um, uh, but yes, that, uh, you're, you're spot on. I had initially always wanted this to be a Jewish story because it, I, I knew it was going to be dealing with vampire tropes. I knew I was mm. going to be drawing on, you know, what if Salem's lot was an apartment building sort of idea. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, I love Salem's lot. I think it is a, a very definitive vampire story, but also works on a great metaphorical level of an examination of the death of the American small town and all, and all that, mm -hmm. the destructive, uh, in, the insidiousness of, uh, uh, of the American dream. Yes. Uh, and uh, so I wanted to examine that from a, from a city boys angle. Uh, Cause I've always lived in cities my whole life. Um, and uh, so, you know, you, as a, as a horror fan who is also Jewish, you, you, I'm, I'm going to say this generically, but I assume other Jews feel similarly, or even just non-Christians in general. Um, you, you always have a weird relationship with vampire stories in particular uh, and, and exorcism stories too, but, but mm. vampire stories, uh, you know, especially the classic mold up to and including Salem's Lot are very Christian. Yes. They're very much grounded in a sort of cross supremacy. Mm. Uh, and, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll pay lip service to like, oh, any holy artifact works as long as you believe in it or something like that. Right. Uh, but ultimately it's really just, you hold up these two sticks of wood against this vampire <laughs> and, and they will, they will react to it. Uh, and when you don't believe in those, in, in that iconography, that does make you like, you know, tilt your head a little bit, like, like a, a dog hearing a strange noise. You're just like, hmm, what does that mean? <laughs> um, that's interesting. Uh, and there are very few books that, uh, that deal with that and stories that deal with, with that from a, from a Jewish perspective. The, the main one that I can think of is The Keep, which isn't even really a Jewish story. It's not written by a Jewish writer and it's not a vampire story. Ultimately, um, there, there's a twist that kind of takes that away. But for a good chunk of that book, it's about these Nazis in a Romanian keep. I think it's Romania, somewhere, uh, uh, Carpathia or something like that. Uh, um, that uh, these Nazis are occupying this keep and this vampiric creature is killing the men and the head SS officer there drags this Jewish historian uh, to the uh, to the keep and says, you got to figure out how to kill this thing that's killing my men. Uh, and the Jewish historian realizes to his horror that the cross works. Uh, and he has a real crisis of faith of like, what does that mean? Mm. Um, and I really wanted to uh, have a horror story that kind of dives into that moment of like, I don't have the cultural weaponry to fight this kind of monster. Mm. I don't know if I, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if I even belong in this lineage of stories because of that. Um, and so, yeah, again, I, I so that had always been a part of, this story's conception but then as you know two-pronged thought as the uh historical events started happening you know mm -hmm. the anti-semitism that is never at zero in this country but like really started mm -hmm. to pick up a kind of a noticeable fever pitch was happening uh i knew that if i was going to write a jewish story like it would have to incorporate that to the reality of what it is like to live through that uh, as a, as a Jewish American. Um, but also as you so beautifully say, uh, 
there was just all this personal suffering mm. uh, that was going on and that, that was informing this book. And Judaism is a religion that has a very unique relationship with suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's one of the things that um, that touches me profoundly about this heritage that I was raised with um, and, you know, had a complicated relationship with. I'm sure as most people who were raised in a religion, like you have mm -hmm. your period where you're like, this is the lamest fucking thing ever. Uh, <laughs> and then the older you get and the more, you know, losses you kind of accrue, mm -hmm. the more you start to understand why these things matter and why these things uh, these things are necessary. This impulse that we have as a species, as a creature mm -hmm. to kind of have these uh, these uh these these artifacts that we pass on mm -hmm. to each generation um i know that was certainly true for me um and so as we were going through these uh these personal tragedies my relationship to judaism which was already changing and maturing uh like kind of matured even faster and even more profoundly uh and so that also informs this text i think judaism is of all you know, I'm not going to claim to be an expert whatsoever, but of all the uh, major religions that I'm aware of uh, and that I have had personal encounters with, Judaism is really um, obsessed with tragedy. Mm -hmm. And we come by it honestly, because uh, we, we've been through a lot <laughs> as a people. Yeah. Uh, but like, it's it's not really until like after the fact where you start to reflect on on how interesting it is to be raised in a religion where so many of our, our holidays are they tried to kill us again mm. uh and so many of our our rituals are about death and are about especially in the modern era um you know the most recent real big genocide uh uh like so much of our our theology is is rooted in that and in this you know even even just the fact that like as a religion judaism uh very much articulates again and again and again in many of our big prayers and our biggest prayers this mm. feeling of homelessness uh mm. there is historically this um this feeling that you know up until like 1947 was kind of left unresolved but like there was a homeland that we were kicked out of and we're just trying to get back there. Yeah. Uh, and that can't not inform your psychological profile as a people and as a person being raised in this, uh, in this, in this, uh, in this religion. Um, so you, there's this yearning, there's this constant feeling of like, we, we don't have what we once did and mm. it was taken from us and not even in a revengey sort of way. Uh, uh, you know, it's 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 not a very revenge focused um, uh, religion It is one mm. of the things I love about it is that it's very humble and it is very much comfortable with questioning and and constantly reinterpreting itself. And like you look mm. at the Talmud mm -hmm. and it's, you know, you got the tiny center of it is the Mishnah and then it's just commentary <laughs> in the margins and this rabbi arguing with that rabbi. And it's all about interpretation and the fallacy of, of, uh, of human perspective. Um, we don't, we don't even say the real name for God because we can't even <laughs> say it. Like it's very comfortable with those like unresolved feelings. Mm. Um, and I think the more you start to experience personal death and even, you know, 
uh, tragedies and a more systemic level and stuff like that. And the, the more you start to accrue those bittersweet feelings and those unresolved feelings, the more, at least I personally have like really kind of fallen in love with with Judaism as a as an mm. entity because mm -hmm. it's so comfortable with that. It is so comfortable with uh, saying that shit happens and mm. like you know. It does. It's not a very ideological religion. It doesn't really assign a lot of reason to things. Mm. It's more just like, you know. <laughs> right. I know this, this is a podcast, so <laughs> so I'm <laughs> I'm not serving my case well, but I'm just given a shrug, you know. And it's it's a very uh, it's a very Jewish gesture of like, well, you know, <laughs> what are you gonna do? Uh, and uh, so that also very much informs this book. Like I mm. it, it um. Like I knew it was going to be a big New York story too, and New York is such a very mm -hmm. Jewish place, as anti-Semites mm -hmm. love to <laughs> reference. They'll call it Jew York City. <laughs> Heard that my whole life, uh, uh, and I was raised by you know a Jewish New Yorker. My mom's from Queens, uh, and even though I was raised in Arizona, like it just New York Jew <laughs> is just imbued in me, um, and so they're intractable to me. Like you can't have a New York story without it also being a Jewish story. Yeah, um, and you know. I'm I'm rambling, but this all kind of forms one larger theme, which mm -hmm. is this feeling, and it it's the first line of the book, uh, which is we don't belong here. It's that mm -hmm. feeling of like, as a as a culture, Jews I think are very much aware that are uh, that are 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 welcoming into this society is always kind of provisional, no matter where we are. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's always this kind of asterisk to it. So there's that feeling of we don't belong physically here. There's the characters feeling we don't belong in this building because, mm -hmm. you know, they're poor. Uh, they're unlucky. They don't belong in this building that is full of rich, lucky people. Mm -hmm. um, there's the feeling of, uh, you know, Anna has with her injuries of like, I don't belong in this body. I don't belong in this chair. Mm -hmm. uh, and her character arc is very much, you know, you you could uh, pretty much summarize it to it's It's about a person learning to be at peace and to eventually love her wheelchair yeah. uh, and the mobility that it grants her. Uh, and uh, there's Reed's feeling of like, I don't belong as a caretaker. Like I don't belong. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I don't have the emotional tools to do this. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, the, even the city's feeling of like, we don't belong in this, in this pandemic -y place. Like we're a congested Ooh. fucking city. <laughs> like we, we, we're, we don't do well with a respiratory uh, virus. Like we're not built for that. Uh, uh, there's just too many people on top of each other. So it's that feeling again and again and again, this kind of uh, refracting feeling of homelessness, of cultural homelessness mm. that I think really is rooted in being someone who was raised like, you know, saying prayers to a, a God in a country that at, by the point that I had, uh, you know, been born existed, but was this tradition of saying like, one day, one day we will be in our homeland one day we will find the place where we belong. That all very much informs this book. Mm -hmm. And that is that is also very scary and propulsive. And I don't want people <laughs> to think that it's some sort of text. Um, but I think I think you're totally right uh, uh, too that like we don't deal with this as a uh, as a genre that yeah. often. We tend and and you know, even out even beyond horror, like when we have a Jewish story, it tends to be either a Holocaust story right. or it tends to be you know, the butt of the joke is that this nebbishy Jew is also a, a sex object. You know, you're Adam Sandler, you're, you're Woody Allen. Like that's, right. that, you know, it becomes its own sort of like fascination of like, oh, interesting. 
this little schlemiel is is having sex with <laughs> Diane Keaton or Jennifer Aniston. Like that's funny, uh, but we don't have stories that really center on 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 that angst, on that yes. sort of non hegemonic angst. Yes. Um, to your credit, I mean, I do think that this this book, obviously, it does so much symbolically. I I don't think that you're not going to find something in here <laughs> for you, right? Like, like if you're a reader and you're just like, well, I don't know if I want to read about a Jewish horror story. Trust me, you want to <laughs> read this. It's so much more, you know, trying to to wrap my head around just all of the work that this book does. Um, I, I, I'll have to read it three dozen times before I feel like I can really put a pin in it and I'm done. <laughs> Wait till you well, start doing the numerology and like you realize that they're on the, the 18th floor, but it's really kind of the 19th <laughs> floor because 18 in Judaism rep is high, which is also a very important thing towards the end, but that means life, but it's a false approximation of life. It's a it's a subverted <laughs> life, so it's not actually 18. Yeah, I I, I like layers. I, I am so <laughs> happy that that uh, you dropped that knowledge on me uh, because now I'm, I am going to reread it obsessively and, you know, kind of pick my way through it. I absolutely That's very love kind it. of you. I'm insufferable. <laughs> I did that with Mary too. There's all sorts of things in Mary where I'm like, "Ooh, this actually means this." Uh, uh, it's too. It's too much textual analysis at a at a uh, at a young age. It warps your brain, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> oh, I absolutely know. Yes, absolutely. Um, this is just. This has been so wonderful to hear you talk about the book and and to talk about these very personal complex mm -hmm. issues um just thank you for for you know just i feel like you've just opened your chest cavity and you're like here look <laughs> look at all this stuff inside um so for those who are curious about your upcoming projects and want to know more about um your books about you about the thoughts you have where can they find you on the internet I'm everywhere at this point, whether whether I want to be or not. I'm a I'm a slowly trying to be a, a current like social media addict. So I've been like trying to wean myself off of all these fucking sites. Uh, uh, and then then I started uh, <laughs> then I started publishing books and like I have to be on these sites all the time. Uh, uh, so I'm on Twitter uh, at Nat Cassidy. Um, I'm on Facebook. I think it's like Nat Cassidy author, or you can find my personal page, which I brought out of retirement after I <laughs> canceled it many years ago. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Catnacity because Nat Cassidy was taken, uh, which means I'm on threads as Catnacity. I'm on TikTok as Nat Cassidy. I'm on Blue Sky as Nat Cassidy. Uh, I'm on YouTube as Nat. I'm on SoundCloud as Nat Cassidy and the Nines, I think, because that's my band name. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, we didn't even get into music. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm on I'm on all of them. And I am kind of getting better at just like posting and running away. So it takes me <laughs> some time to interact with people because I know if I start interacting, I'm just gonna fall into the habits that I that consumed my life for most of the 2010s. Uh, and so I'm trying I'm trying to not be on them as much, uh, but it's a challenge, but I'm there. I'm there if you want to find me. I love it. <laughs> well, Nestlings comes out October 31st, 2023. Listen, if you're looking for a Halloween read, 
I cannot recommend this book more highly. This is absolutely the book for your spooky season and beyond. So go out and grab a copy of Nestlings as soon as you see it. Thank you, Trevor. That means more than I can say. And look, oh my God, we did this in like an hour and 15 minutes or something. I was, I was banking on like a three hour conversation. <laughs> I'm impressed with us.